So the Berean Jews, it says, were of more noble character than those who were in Thessalonica. For the Berean Jews received Paul's message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is the word of the Lord. And by the way, when I say that, you know why, I end that, why whenever I read scripture like that, I say, this is the word of the Lord. And then people say, thanks be to God. It's to distinguish the difference between the authority of this book and the lesser authority of my commentary on it. <laughs> you, get, you get it? Like, this is God's word. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> the Berean Jews were of more noble character than the Thessalonican Jews, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. There's a lot crammed into that one little sentence, isn't there? Their noble character was expressed in two different things. You notice the two things? Should I say it again? Be looking for the two things. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So their noble character was expressed, though. That's the second one. The eagerness is the first one. The first part that made them more noble was their spiritual eagerness. They received what Paul said with hunger. And the second part was they also diligently checked his words against the book daily to see if what he was saying was true. That's a huge verse. There's, this is a big verse for Christians, and a lot of Christians, I think, some of us even would think of this verse and go, it has a bad taste in our mouth because we've kind of had it quoted to us by believers who um, replaced the Holy Spirit with the Bible. You know, they kind of believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. But just because they did that doesn't mean it's not an important verse. Uh, I, I love this. Okay, so I want to give you some math. A uh, little, little bit of math. A little bit of math. Not too much. I will say this. The other night, Israel was doing his homework. And he's like, how do I solve for this isosceles? Yeah, how do I solve? And I was like, well, it's A squared plus B, C, B squared equals C squared. And we figured it all out. And then when he was done, he goes, oh, you did such a better job explaining that than my teacher. And I was like, ha-ha, touche. Because I, you know, math's not my strong area. So I felt pretty good about that. All right. 800,000. 800,000 words. In the Bible, around about, I'm rounding up just slightly. Most people read around 200, 200 to 250 words per minute. Well, that's actually on the, the fast readers read way faster than that. I probably read slower than that, to be honest with you. But 
Well, my wife thinks I'm crazy slow as a, as a reader. But here's the difference. Ten years later, I remember what I read. <laughs> Sometimes, right? Sometimes. How do you remember that? Oh, I read it when I first became a Christian. I was on the roof in India, and I was reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and he was saying that one guy was like, you give me a bit of your orange, and he was mean to him. And then how would I remember that? That was 1998. <laughs> and I remember what book I was and where I was when I read him talking about people. Give me a piece of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. How dare you? So if you read 30 minutes a day, how many words is that? At this rate, let's just pick this one, the slower of the two. So 30 minutes, 200 words per minute. You got it. Thank you. All right. So then you, I said there's 800,000 words in the, in the whole Bible. How many days does it take you to uh, read through the whole Bible at that rate? I like dots. Let's put little dots for bullet points here. That's 133 days. You were almost there? You're ready to win the board. Or 4.3 months, right? That's not a fast reading pace for a normal book, but I would say for the way I read the Bible, that would be really fast because the way I read the Bible is I don't read it like a normal book. And truthfully, I read while standing up, walking around, and I read out loud most of the time when I read the Bible um, as, as just a part of the way I do it. I don't know why I'm such a slow reader, but you might be, that might be why. Maybe it's because I'm carefully looking at the details of the, of the sentence structure rather than my wife just flying constantly. I'll say, hey, look at this, and she'll be like, okay, yeah, that's great. And I'm like, there's no way in the world you read that whole thing. She's like, I did, I read it. And I'm like, I'm on paragraph two. She goes, oh, she is, she, re she really is. And at this rate, uh, you can get through the whole New Testament at this reading rate in 31 days. Well, I did. you weren't, because I didn't put up here how many words the New Testament is. Uh, and I think the New Testament is probably something like, uh, is that right, something like that, 30? Am I wrong? No. I'll have it in my notes later, probably. Uh, through the New Testament, okay. If you, uh, in 2020, 2020, this last year, pandemic year, right? The average American, how many hours do you think the average American spent on social media per day? A lot. Less. <laughs> Tina, did they even log off ever? The average American, which means lots did less, because some people don't have, you know, some people are like, whatever, that's for fools. And then other people are like, what? That's how I connect with everybody. <laughs> Um, so, so apparently that's my stereotype, it's only women. What, no, because I'm on there. In 2020, the average American spent three hours per day on social media. I feel like that's kind of light. Average, right? Yeah. That means Wait. the people got zero. Yeah, 
Seven tells and you, you did less hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's the average American. I wonder what the number is for the average American who actually did it, excluding the zeros. Because if three is the average of everyone, including those who never touched it, then, then you might be at six hours, right? So think of this for a second, like three hours a day. Let's just stay with three hours because it's the data based on the surveys. And I wonder how honest people are in the surveys. Maybe they're getting that from the app data, like you said. The, phones do, the devices do track us. You know, my, my iPad tells me what all I spent my time on. Look, you spent this much time on email. You spent this much time in the browser. You spent this much time on YouTube. You, you know, all that. And I don't like it. I don't like it to tell me. It's like, go away. Don't, stop judging me. You know, that's, and the, my iPad's like, I'm not even capable of judging you. you you're, you're, you're projecting onto me your own guilt. So, but think about how much information how much information that is being absorbed, how much worldview, how many opinions, how much so-called news, how many perspectives, how many ideas, and then how many things we're reacting to and soaking in and thinking about and meditating on based on three hours of, of intake a day. And uh, <laughs> I mean, some of it was probably Christian stuff, right? You know, oh, yeah, well, that's where I get my devotional thoughts. One sentence in a graphical image. I'm like, that's your devotions? Is one sentence on a, a moving thing that goes past you in a second? That's, on, that's your devotions? Bro, do better. You know, don't, be, don't feel judged by what I'm saying. Just, just be judged by it and stop. But, um, <laughs> but like, even if some of it is Christian, it, that's secondhand spirituality. That's somebody else's first-hand revelation that now is your second-hand revelation, and it's not near as good as your Bible, your Holy Spirit, your Jesus, your prayer time, your situation, because God's going to speak to you the word that applies to you. You know, second-hand spirituality is, is, that's okay, that's okay, but it's not best. It's good, it's not great, you know? The enemy of great is usually good. You know, for most of us, bad is not the thing we fall for. Good is the thing that we fall for, that we end up wasting our life on instead of great. So if we had spent three hours, <laughs> if we had spent in 2020 three hours, and, and we'll, get, we'll get to the point you're making, which is the meaty reading isn't speed reading. But first, let's at least just do this math, Okay. That meant that if we had done three, we could have gone through the whole New Testament in 5.1 days, which means we could have read the whole New Testament every week in 2020. That would have been great. Uh, we could have gone through the whole Bible in 22 days. Actually, 22 point, what is it? 22.2. Why do these precise measurements matter to me so much? I don't know. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that our goal should be quantity. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not. It's quality. Qua yeah, for real. Quality. Not quantity. I'm, I'm much more interested in how, in how much time you spent in having first-hand encounter with God every day. Every day. That's what I'm most interested in. Uh, genuine time, I don't know how you would measure this, but how many minutes or how, how you know, not that it's a, the goal is not to measure, but, but 
there's something to be said about being disciplined. There's, there's something very important to be said about being disciplined. So is that like Lent? You know, you give up something as disciplined in a way? Yeah, kind of. You know what I mean? Like, I always joke every year that I gave up sin for Lent, but... Well, it's like people go a cigarette for Lent and go right back to it. I, actually, it's hilarious that you say that because I was a brand new Christian and I'd never heard of Lent. And my friend, I was over at my friend's house and everyone was angry <laughs> because they were all giving up cigarettes oh. for Lent temporarily. <laughs> they were all going through withdrawal syndrome. Oh, just angry for Jesus. <laughs> I never understood that. That's like giving up fried chicken for Lent. Like, I, normally I eat a whole box of chicken every day, but what, dude? Maybe you ought to just not do that normally. So, uh, but yeah, so I'm interested in, I'm not so much interested in the quantity. I'm, I'm really interested in the quality. But once you get the quality, usually you want more quantity of the quality. Right? I mean, once you really taste, taste the riches of what it's like to have fellowship with God, it's hard to go back to secondhand spirituality. You know, it's like, so the real issue here for, for me, the reason I'm bringing this up is the Bereans were of more noble character because they were hungrier for the gospel than the Thessalonians, and they were hungry to test everything that was being said against the book, because the book is the truth. Humans can mess it up, but the book is the truth. The word of God is the rule, the, the measuring, you know? If you have you ever seen somebody hang a plumb line next to a, a wall that's being built? Yeah. It doesn't lie, does it? No. It looks straight to your eye until you put the plumb line, and then you can tell whether your eye's right. There's a lot of life like that. There's a lot of things in life where it looks right to you, but when you put it up against the, measure, the measuring tool of God's book, you realize your eye was wrong. What seemed right to you was wrong. And I've talked about this before, but our culture has a voice, and there's parts of the truth that our culture will love, and there's parts of the truth our culture will hate. And so if we aren't in the book constantly, we're likely going to be swept away to unfaithfulness in some areas of our life as we just, we're just doing what seems right to us, what feels right to us, what looks right to us, but it's not plumb, okay? Um, Paul talks about discipline, and you, you mentioned Lent, but, but no, I'm not so much talking about Lent. I'm talking about uh, if you eat whatever you feel like eating whenever you feel like eating it, that's not a good health strategy, is it? If you work when you feel like working instead of on a schedule, you're probably not going to work very many hours in a week, are you? If you seek God only when you feel like it or when, you're, when you're, you feel like in a good place to God, instead of out of discipline because you've set aside a schedule that you are going to follow, then at the end of a year, having only sought the Lord's face, when you felt like it, when the desire struck you, or at the New Year's because you were like, oh yeah, New Year's resolution, gonna seek Jesus this year, here we go. Or after a revival weekend when Brian Connolly comes in and you're like, oh yeah, here we go, oh yeah. Then at the end of a year of doing it out of desire only, you're gonna have 
a tiny little pile of encounters with God, just a teensy tiny little pile of encounters with God. Because he says, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. But you only drew near when you felt like it. So you have a tiny little pile of encounters. He's totally available. You just didn't come. But over here's a guy who just showed up every day, whether he felt like it or not. And God met him on the days he didn't feel like going. Like I say, I'm a preacher, so I show up at prayer meeting. Not because I want to, but because I'm the preacher and y'all expect me to. And then I encounter the Holy Spirit. And that's how I get through. That's why, that's why I just, that's why I'm fairly steady, even though as a human, I'm not a very steady emotional person. You know me, right? The people who scream a lot in public usually cry a lot in private. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm this way emotionally, but I'm pretty steady in my walk. And part of that is because I show up even when I don't feel like it and God meets me there. And he strengthens me and he encounters me. But at the end of a year, if I was looking at the disciplined man's pile of encounters with God, things he heard, things he felt, things he learned, things God said, things, scriptures that are just brand, transformation, grace, it's a big old pile. Then over here's this guy who said, I'm not religious. I just do when I feel like. I wouldn't want to be a hypocrite. I just do when I feel like. I'm I'm not going to be disciplined, blah, blah, blah. It's a tiny little pile. Right? And Hebrews says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to start over and teach you the basics of the word of God already. By now you should have grown up. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to discern good from evil. Right? The Bereans, they dug in. They were both eager for the preaching, but they were diligent and private to go, is that true? They knew the truth. They weren't going to be led astray by some whack job. And some nut job's not going to come into their church and lead them astray because they know the book. You can't get one over on them. They know the book. They know the Old Testament. They know the New Testament. They know the prophets. They pray the Psalms. They know the book. And by knowing the book, they've trained themselves to discern what's really Jesus' voice and what's a whole lot of cool-sounding human human bullcrap. I've seen, my, I've seen some of my friends, and I'm not naming names, drift doctrinally. They started over here preaching one thing. Now, 15 years later, they're way over here. And I go, they did what now? I don't think I can endorse their ministry anymore. I said, look, look at this, Carrie. Look at this. What is going on with this guy? What happened? And she goes, oh, my word. I said, I think he's drifting. What happened? And then I don't name his name to you guys, I really ought to figure out how to talk to him, to be honest with you. Okay. So it's like, is church talking wrong? Because I've been to a church. I've been to all the church talking about this church. Is that kind of wrong or right? I was trying to find the right one that fit me, and they didn't seem like it did. It's not wrong to intentionally engage a season of finding your fit. So it's okay. But you've got to plant somewhere. I did it right in church. Yeah, yeah, and I'm saying... So they good. Well, here's, here's my wife and I, right? I was like, let's visit all the churches in our county and then narrow it down to 10 and then narrow it down to three and then narrow it down to one. And she goes, what are you, crazy? We, we ended up staying at the third one we visited because she was like, this is right. And I'm like, what, but what about all the rest of them? But she, you know, we, I came in and the, and, and the preacher basically said, Here's all the ministries in the church. Here's why we don't dress up. We don't dress up in this church because we want to minister to poor people. And if you're trying to minister to poor people and you're all wearing suits and ties and the poor people come in and they don't own suits and ties, they feel ashamed of themselves. So if you have a ministry, if you you want a ministry to, to unchurched poor people, 
you're actually being really unloving to wear suit and ties to church. And I said, that makes good sense. I've never even heard anyone explain that. And he goes, here's why we sing the songs we do. We like hymns. There's nothing wrong with hymns. But the reason we don't sing hymns in, there, in here is because we want to we have music that sounds at least vaguely similar to the kind of music that they listened to before they were Christians that's catchy and simple and singable and memorable, but is filled with gospel truth that they can remember and sing throughout the week. I said, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone explain why we do it that way. Huh. Also, we have a soup kitchen. We have cans of food, and we do this, that, and the other. And this is why we do it, and this is how often we collect the food. I thought, oh, that's interesting. He's explaining that. And here's our worship team. And at the end of his, he explained all the ministries. I thought, this is the first time in my whole life I've ever understood a church saying, here's why we do the things we do. And that felt really good. His name is Wayne, by the way. Now he's a pastor at a big old church in Texas, and he talks like he's from Texas. And he's hilarious. Tim Miller! High-pitched voice. Good to hear your voice. I just believe in you. I only got two minutes to talk to you, but I just want to let you know you're amazing. I'm so glad to know you. You're going to have a great day. You're going to preach the word of God and God's purposes in your life. You're going to stand anyway. I got to get out of here. I got a kid better baseball game. Bye. <laughs> Wayne, you're just a fireball. Total crazy guy. Anyway, at the end of the service, they go, he, he gives some sort of call and they're singing a song and he's up there. He's the... And his guitar strap comes off, so he's jumping on one foot, try, <laughs> trying to hold it up with his leg and play it. <laughs> so I walk straight over. They had every, every ministry of the church had sign-up tables. So I walk, just like the first time we've ever been to this church. We just, that was the first time I've ever been to that church. We show up. He tells us everything and says, if you're interested in serving in any of these areas, come sign up at the tables at the end. I walk straight over, and I was like, y'all need my help. We don't need this. <laughs> we don't need this, this preacher jumping around on one leg. So we planted there. And, so, and I went to seminary and college. So that's four years and four years. That's eight years. Eight years of, of punishment and pain and bills. <laughs> you know? But I was deeply committed. I, I'm trying to answer your question. I was deeply committed to the idea that sitting in a classroom is not a good preparation for ministry. If you want to prepare for ministry, you ought to be plugged in and serving in a local church. And serving, by the way, is, is amazing. Like that's, if you're passive in the church, you're not growing. If you're not serving, you're probably not growing. And, and you're probably not as happy because it's better, it's more happy, more blessed, says Jesus, to give than to receive, right? So planting yourself in a local church. So I planted myself in that church. And I'm really glad I did. I, I'm really glad I did. Those, I still love those people. So yes, plant, plant yourself in a local church. And then you gotta know this, by the way, the devil... God's purpose is because he says God, that is, God has arranged, 1 Corinthians 12, God has arranged the parts of the body as he sees fit. So, so God will, will, will plant you in a local church where your gifts fulfill a need. Right? Did you know you have gifts? Every one of you have gifts? It's a biblical fact. You can argue with me, but the Holy Spirit has given you gifts. I might not know what they are yet. You might not know what they are yet, but he knows what they are. And you're not called to be me. You're called to be you. You're called to be you in love with Jesus, making your contribution. It says every single one has gifts for the common good. So God's will is for you to be planted in a local church, serving, using your gifts to build up the people around you. Now, if that's God's will, what do you think Satan wants? He wants to get you out of your local church. God wants to plant you in a local church. So Satan's goal is to cause you to get offended and leave. I'm dead serious. 
if, he can, if Satan can get you to get offended and leave, it will short circuit both the thing that God wanted to do for that community through you and the thing God wanted to do in you through you learning how to stay. You will, you will stunt your spiritual growth the more churches you leave. And I'm not talking about you who you're looking for a church. Different thing, totally different thing. I'm talking about once you know where you're planted, you're gonna be tempted to leave. You're gonna be tempted to be offended with the people around you, not doing what you think they should be doing, with the preacher, not doing what he, you think he should do, with you not feeling free to do what you feel called to do. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And God has purposes in your life far beyond the local church. He has purposes in your life to reach the world for the kingdom. But there's supposed to be a, a, a connection to the local church as the primary shaping training ground. Does this make any sense? Okay. And really, I, I didn't mean to talk about that. I'm just, I'm just trying to say it's important for us to pursue this thing with intentionality and discipline not just Bible reading, but commitment to a local church. And giving. I remember years ago, and I've said this so many times to you, you guys, this will be repeat for almost everyone in here, but years ago I was thinking about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said that when we obey God when we don't feel like it, it sometimes brings more joy to God's heart than when we obey God when we do feel like it. C.S. Lewis said that sometimes when we obey God when we don't feel like obeying, it brings more joy to God's heart than when we obey God when we do feel like obeying. I, it's saying, God, I want you more than I want my own happiness. I want you more than anything. Your will is my priority. God's will is a big deal. God's will is more important than my life. David Showalter the father of, uh, of my previous mentor, Richard, who's in heaven too now. David's in heaven, his son. Richard was my mentor, who is in heaven now too. David one time, somebody, somebody in the church said, I thank God that he's always provided everything we need and I've never had to steal to feed my family. And Richard stood up and said, you don't have to live and sat down. He thought it was more important to obey God than to live, than to survive. He would rather starve than steal. Now that's extreme. <laughs> And you can say, what, what about your kids though, bro? Wouldn't you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you rather violate your own integrity and protect your children? Is your integrity more, worth more than, the, than your children's lives? So we could get into a big old moral, moral argument about that. Okay, but back to C.S. Lewis. Go ahead. Martyrs, mar that's a good point. Martyrs are the ultimate expression of God's will is more important to me than my life. Okay, so I was asking the Lord, C.S. Lewis, right? Sometimes it pleases God when we obey God out of duty. And I'm like, I was thinking about that because C.S. Lewis is not in the, he's not the Bible. And this book has led me to the conclusion that God wants my heart. He doesn't just want my obedience. He wants my devotion. He wants my love. He wants my affection, right? Like imagine Mary at his feet in Luke chapter seven, pouring, pouring anointing oil on his feet, but disinterested and bored because she, yeah, I'm supposed to do this. Is he, would he be pleased by that? No. So I was trying to figure out, like, is C.S. Lewis right or wrong? Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like, could you be Mary at his feet, like, not crying, not, not kissing his feet, just there watching him, like, I'm supposed to do this. <laughs> to me, that would steal all the... And so I said, Lord, do you like my discipline or my passion? Do you prefer my discipline or my passion? Is C.S. Lewis right? It was my question. I said, God, do you want me to, to show up on target 
every morning? Is that what is important to you? Or is it important to you that, that, that I show up when I'm, that my heart's just, my heart's in it? Which one do you prefer? Anybody remember? Stan says, God wants both. Here's what he said. Immediately, I heard the Lord say, Tim, I, I prefer your passion over your discipline every time. But it takes discipline to maintain your passion over time. It was like he put them in the right connection to each other. The point of showing up when I don't feel like it is to put my heart in the position to where it will feel like it. The point of the discipline is intimacy and relationship. The point of exercising my will and self-control is so that I'll put myself in a position that my heart will learn to love and, and savor the right things. So really what we're talking about is spiritual discipline. Bible study is a discipline. How about this one? Giving is a discipline. Attending things. Showing up, dude, showing up is bigger than we think it is. Yep. Showing up. I, I wrote on this board one time, show up <laughs> on time, like four rules for life, right? Show up on time, prepared. <laughs> then fourth one, follow through. And the very next Sunday I was late. <laughs> and I was like, oh! I was, I, I was like, it's harder than it looks. It's show up on time, prepared, follow through. That is so simple, but so powerful. If you show up, I don't care what, even what we're talking about. If you just show up, let's say to work, on time, prepared, and then you follow through. You do what you said you would do. You're gonna go through the organization. Or maybe you'll be taken advantage of by the organization and they'll be like, can you do everything while we just sit around? <laughs> the one dude digging and the other guys are working, working. I think it's to the left. <laughs> Did you know you can rejoice with discipline? Well, there's a lot of folks, they complain with discipline. Here's a quote for you. A lot of the misery in our lives is a direct result of the things we have said in the past. I feel like I need to unpack that. Our words create worlds. God created by speaking things into existence. And he, and he gave creation to Adam and Eve, and he set us in dominion over the creation, and we are made in his image, which means our words also create worlds. And a lot of our grumbling things are actually curses. I'll never get it right. Everyone will always reject me. This will keep happening. You kids are so stupid. Nobody appreciates me. No one called me on the phone. We're creating worlds. We're prophesying things into existence. A lot of the suffering and pain in our life is a direct result of the things we have spoken in the past. And we can turn it around by learning to, you know how much of an emphasis there is in being thankful? One of the verses that's fresh in my heart is because one of my kids is keeping saying potty mouth jokes. And, and I'm like, that boy's fixing to be writing some scriptures repeatedly for a while here. Okay, entire, Ephesians 5.4, entirely out of place among Christians, entirely out of place is obscene, silly, vulgar talk. But instead, 
What do you expect him to say? You expect him to say, purity. Here's what he says. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Christian speech is to be filled with constant gratitude, constant thanksgiving, not complaining, not grumbling, not perverted, coarse, sexualized joking, which is very normal for humans. Yeah, look at, look at stand-up comedians. Look what they do when they don't know what to do. They go dirty. That's their idea of how to get people to react and laugh. This is why I love the clean comedians, because they actually have to be clever, intelligent, and thoughtful instead of just appeal to like, <laughs> he said, but. <laughs> Give me a break, what are you, five? You know what I mean? You know, it's just the adult version of that. But anyway, so there's a child in my family that is probably gonna be fixing to write at least 10 times, Ephesians 5, 4 coming up here shortly, if, I, if it happens again, because it's two days in a row that there's been something like that, you know? And something to say about the complaining, like, there's times, like, I mean, it happens to everybody, but like, something at work doesn't go your way, and like, I feel like it was like all the time in my job, like something just wasn't going right. And then like I'd get mad at something yeah. and then my attitude the rest of the day would just be terrible. So like I've come to a conclusion and I actually have gotten a lot better with it, but like if something is going wrong, like I've come to a conclusion that me getting mad about it isn't going to change the fact that it's still happened. Like I'm just gonna keep getting more mad with everything that I do. Yep. So I feel like having a more positive attitude definitely it's like a school, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, like you, don't, you wouldn't think it would make such a difference, but I feel like having a more positive outlook, like even at work, like it's just, it makes you feel better. So what you're saying is people who complain actually are more miserable. I, I feel like I was, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> we need to draw a distinction, though, between complaining in a way that is intended to fix a problem and grumbling where there's, it's not an intention to fix a problem. It's just an intention to affix blame on someone or something for why I should be justified in my misery. I, I feel miserable. And some people have actually been trained or trained themselves that being a miserable victim is the only way to get other people to take good care of them. And they use it as a weapon in life. The only thing they know to talk about is what's wrong, to elicit pity because they don't, know how to be, like, they don't know how to be on the same level with people as equals. They only know how to be the recipients of pity. But anyway, okay. Here's another word, and I want everyone to know this phrase. Means of grace. Protestants don't really know this phrase very well. Catholics know the phrase means of grace because they think, oh, if I go to communion, God's here. The priest says the words. This becomes the body and blood. I eat it. And boom, grace comes into me, and then, I, and then I, 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 something happened. It's very transactional. There's stuff I disagree with about that. But the concept of means of grace, I 100% believe. Jesus has done everything. He's done everything to open wide the gates. Like the, the curtain in the Holy of Holies ripped when he died. The, the place of separation between God and man eliminated. We have full access to his presence. So Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews repeatedly says to draw near. Hey, since he did this, since he's such a great high priest, since he sacrificed himself, since all, since he's paid for the sins of, for all time, he's purified you. Now draw near, now draw near, now draw near, now draw near to God. Why? 
Draw near to the throne of grace that you might find grace and mercy to help you in the time of your need. Draw near, draw near, draw near. Don't shrink back, draw near. It's the whole point of the, of the book of Hebrews is to convince persecuted Jewish Jesus followers not to run away from Jesus because the price tag got really high because they were tempted to run back to just Judaism without, they just, I'll give up the Jesus thing. It's costing me too much. I'll just go back to what I know under Moses. And so the whole book of Hebrews is like, don't you dare. What are you thinking? He's the point of all that old system. What are you doing? If you shrink back, he will not be pleased with you. You'll be like those people who fell in the desert, who, who got rescued out of slavery in Egypt, but then they died before they got to the promised land. That'll be just like you if you do this. That's a pretty intense word, isn't it? So don't go back. Yeah, to these Jewish Christians who are, who, who are paying a high price because of the Jesus part of this equation, and they want to go, will my cost, will, it, will my price go down? Will my pain point, will my pain decrease if I just go back to being just Jewish but not Jesus? And the author of Hebrews says, you know, actually your pain point's going to increase because God will not hold guiltless the one who spits on the Jesus who died for them. That's the wrong direction. That's the wrong strategy. And that's where we get some of the most intense warnings in the whole New Testament. And some of those passages have been used to terrorize people. <laughs> but they're very helpful warnings. Since I feel very safe in my relationship with God, those passages don't scare me, they excite me. Ananias and Sapphira, killed dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Pretended, they sold a piece of land and then they pretended that they were giving the full amount to the Lord. But they actually kept most of it for themselves or some of it at least, to themselves. I don't know the exact amount. Peter says, is this the full amount? Yes, it is. We're so amazing and generous. And he says this, he says this. How is it that Satan, this is Peter, New Testament, not Old Testament. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart with evil that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? He falls down dead. Then she comes in and he says, is this the full amount? Mm-hmm. And then he says, Peter says this, he could have just warned her, your, your husband just died, but he doesn't warn her. The feet of the men who just buried your husband are gonna carry you out too. <laughs> she falls down dead. And, I, and, and like that's, that's New Testament, guys. Isn't that intense? And so this is why this came up with me and Carrie last night is in our culture, there's a thing right now that says, the, the, the location of truth is in the feelings of humans. So if you feel like I've wronged you, then I have wronged you. And the appropriate thing for me to do is apologize to you for offending you. And so Carrie was commenting on a list of things. Here are some things it's good to get comfortable saying. Hmm, tell me more about your experience of me. I'm sorry that that happened. I'll try to do better. And the whole list of other things. And I said, wow. I said, that is the end result of empowering a victim spirit that's rooted in offense, that's attempting to manipulate and control everyone around you, and that's locating the center of truth in the human emotions instead of the God of creation and his word as the source of truth. Compare that to how has, this, has the devil so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Mm, dead. Like, I can't square it. I can't take on this modern political evil spirit of victimized, manipulative control. Anyway, whew, I don't know how I got there on that topic. Means of grace, means of grace. Guys, there's grace for you if you will eat the book. 
if you will digest the book, if you will meditate on the book, there's grace for you if you will show up and talk to the Father. Open your heart to him. Hear what his heart is for you. There's grace for you if you'll show up on Sundays, the day of his resurrection with his people to bring him an offering of your life, to raise your voice and sing to him even if you're not a good singer because he's worthy of it. It's not about you. It's not about, was church good today? Shut up. Who cares? Did he get out of you today what his blood should be getting out of you today? Good Lord, have mercy. We flipped the whole thing into self-worship. We call it worship, and it's actually carnality pretending to be worship. I'm yelling at you. I like you people. I don't know why I'm yelling. I guess I'm yelling because I'm jealous for him. Because if you come with that attitude of bringing him something, it'll transform you every time. Like Brian talked about it all weekend, didn't he? It's how much of you gets on the altar and gets burned up. The Holy Spirit... We're the one. The priests are the ones who put the wood on the altar, but it's the Lord who brings the fire. But he can only burn what we genuinely surrender. Or we sang it in our songs this weekend. This right here is your temple. This is your home, this is your home Father, here in our chests. And, and with, every, with every yes, your kingdom is coming. Every one of our yeses, right? A sacrifice of praise. Romans 12, in light of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices right? Our yeses, our, our acts of surrender, or, I, or I've been pr- processing this one. Jesus wants the thing you don't want to surrender him, to him is the main thing he wants you to give. The person, the relationship, the security, the pursuit, the identity thing. For me, it's this right here. On Sunday, and I've done it before, I surrendered my role as pastor, preacher. You know, if you want me to go be a nobody, and by nobody, I mean nobody knows my name. That's what I mean. If you want me to be someone who nobody knows my name, I never preach again. And all I do is just I seek you in private and I love people and I have a regular job, then, then yes, God, I surrender this thing to you. Because for me, one of the dangerous idols, again, the good things in our life usually are the things threatening to take his place in our heart. The good things in our, our kids, our wives, our girlfriends, our jobs. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay. Almost done. How about exercise? Should we talk about exercise? Because it's, it's means of grace, Bible, giving, attending, serving, rejoicing. These are to the soul, just like exercise is to the body. I said a little bit ago that if you eat whatever you want, whenever you feel like, at the end of a year, how about if I exercise? Stan and I are trying really hard. Stan and I both have a little bit more belly fat than, than, than we want because they say your belly fat is like your indicator of a man as your, of your like cholesterol and heart health. And I go, oh no. <laughs> Every time I gain a pant size, I go, Carrie, I need bigger pants. It's an indication of the cortisol on there. Uh, maybe that too. <laughs> I like cortisol. It feels good. <laughs> now, I can feel my blood pressure too. When I'm not running... I can feel my blood pressure. I'm, I'm a very excitable person, and I'll get all excited. I'm also a very stressed, stressed neurotic person, meaning I, I get anxious easily. And that's not because I'm unspiritual. That's my actual personality profile. I might also be unspiritual, but I'm just saying it's the nature I'm working with, too. There's some people who they can be lawyers. They can stand there and tell you to your face, you're wrong, and you're stupid, and you're an idiot, and they'll be fine with it, and they'll think the whole interaction was great, and they won. With, if I did that to somebody, I would be shaking. I would be shaking. If I knew I was going to do it the next day, I would not sleep that, that night. Do you know what I'm talking about? I hate conflict. That doesn't mean I'm not called to it. But So with exercise, I can feel my blood pressure when it gets too high, and I go, i got to get out there and run. 
Now imagine if Stan and I only exercised when we felt like it and only exercised as long as we felt like it. How many miles would I run if I stopped as soon as I didn't feel like it anymore? How many days would I get out there? It's actually harder to get my shoes on than it is to, to run. It's like... Is it worth this run I'm about to take? <sighs> <laughs> it's, and I put on things in my headphones to try to alleviate the... Like, there's no reason to make it any worse than it has to be. I used to run on a treadmill. Oh, my word, you guys, standing in a house, running, facing a wall? Oh, my goodness. You see the ones on TV that have, it's like a screen. It looks like you're running through the mountains. There's like a screen in front of you. Like a... Well, I used to do that with an iPad, but it's still, not as, it's still not as good as just being outside. I'm in my stinky house with my dirty laundry basket next to me. Come on, man. That's, I just want to go outside for a minute, you know? And get some sunlight while I'm at it. But if, if I would only exercise when I felt like it, as long as I felt like it, I wouldn't exercise much. And as a result, well, you guys already know what the result is because you can see my body. I stand up in front of you with a microphone every week and you're like, mm, mm, look like you got bigger pants again. That's true, I did. When I started this job, I was a 32 waist. 33, maybe. I'm big bone, leave me alone. And now I'm, a, I'm not even gonna say. It's too embarrassing, I'll blush if I say it. So anyway, and it's the same for all these other areas of grace. I don't know if, what we think. If like when we say yes to Jesus, I think we think he's gonna wave a magic wand and, and he's just gonna change us magically. And no, what happens in that moment is your spirit becomes righteous and you're 100% forgiven and you're transferred legally from being a child of the devil to being his child. But your soul, which has mind, will, and emotions, you're the one who chooses to allow your mind, will, and emotions to, to actually be transformed by grace, have our minds renewed. This is old, right? You all know this all, right? Just tell me, nod your head and say, yeah, I know that. So, and based on the Hebrews passage saying, by this time you ought to be teachers, Hebrews 5, 11, about this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you have become dull in understanding. About this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull in understanding. For by this time, though by this time, though by this time, you ought to be teachers. That's just fascinating, isn't it? He expects that they are going to be like the Bereans. Eagerly embrace the word and then daily check against the scripture. That's what he expects. That's what the author of Hebrews thinks is normal. It's a normal response to Jesus. You say yes to Jesus and you get in the book because you want to learn about Jesus. You want to hear what Jesus has to say. You want to learn the stories that Jesus has given you that are supposed to shape your life. You want to pray these prayers that, that Jesus actually himself prayed, by the way, the Psalms, right? You get in there and dig in. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. Oh, it's like, he's like not even being nice now, is he? Did you need a pacifier? That's what he said. You need a binky and a blanky. And you're like, ow, dang, dude. You know? He's like, you ought to be cleaning your shotgun. Instead, you're sucking on a pacifier. What are you doing, guys? You need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk being still an infant is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, 
I think that's, how do you guys pronounce the word mature? Because sometimes I used to pronounce it mature, and my wife would tell me later in church, please do, don't pronounce mature, mature. You sound so pretentious, smug. And I was like, dang, that seems like an over. Okay. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice. Look at that. Another translation will say constant use to discern between good and evil. Again, looks right to me. Then you set it up next to the plumb line. Oh, it looks like, oh, I was wrong. It's not straight. Oh, man. But by constant use in this book, you now know. That ain't right. I ain't doing that. I ain't going down that road. I'm not doing that. I'm avoiding that. I'm pursuing that. All right. I'd say that's actually about enough for tonight.